have to say I was a little concerned that uh, we we're going off the rails with the light bulbs there for a minute. Uh, but I am impressed with uh, your ability to, to bring it back to Jesus. Uh, so thank you for that. Um, and I also have to have to confess that uh, when we decided to uh, to preach through the Ten Commandments for our summer sermon series, uh, this week was kind of the week that I was hoping to miss. <laughs> and actually, I would have had an out. I had a child like ten days ago. But then I also had the bright idea that today would be a great day for his baptism. And I couldn't decline the opportunity to, to preach on, on the day of my son's baptism. So, here we are. But, but there's something about the Sixth Commandments and, and the topic of adultery and sex and sexuality that for whatever reason has the ability to turn a, a church filled with adults into a classroom of eighth grade boys in health class. <laughs> where suddenly we find ourselves blushing and getting incredibly uncomfortable around the topic and, and we just rather not really talk about it. Which makes me stop and, and think, what, what is it about sex that is such a, a, a big deal? Well, why is it that this topic makes us so uncomfortable? I, I suspect that for a lot of us, it's because we just grew up in homes where, where it wasn't really talked about at all. And, and you know, I think that's perhaps a a great danger because when we refuse to talk about this topic within the context of the church, we just simply leave the world to drive the conversation. And and so we send our young people, we send our children out to listen to the the talking heads in celebrity culture, and that's who determines their views on the topic of sexuality. And if you stop and think about it, what better place is there actually to talk about this topic than the church? What better place is there to talk about it than a place where we have the promise that we have a Savior who bears our sin, who bears our guilt, who takes away our shame? This should be the primary place where we can talk about the sixth commandment. The scriptures aren't silent on it. And we certainly shouldn't be either, because if we are, then we just hand the conversation over to the world. I remember uh, last January, uh, there was a story that came out. Uh, There was a young woman who she had posted an article on an internet site about a date that she went on uh, with a a fairly famous actor. And and she gave a a lot of very clear details of, of the events of their date. And she was very hurt by his actions and and actually made accusations that his actions could be considered criminal. Now, what was especially troubling for a lot of people about these accusations is that this particular famous actor was actually rather famous for kind of playing the sort of classic nice guys finish last role where he was the small, wimpy, kind guy who got shoved into the friend zone while he watched his friends, who never treated women very well, get all the girls. And suddenly, this guy who played the nice guy role was suddenly seen as as not treating women so well. Now, there was a a lot of debate that, that, that sort of was sparked by this 
particular article and, and this particular instance. Debate about whether his actions really sort of fall into the category of sexual assault or, or if maybe his, his behavior was maybe a little odd, a, a little uncomfortable, but not necessarily wrong. And I remember having numerous conversations uh, about this particular event with, with friends and, and peers of mine and eventually just getting to the point of thinking, is this really the conversation that we're having? Is this really where the line is being drawn in terms of sexuality? Is the line really being drawn at the place of activity and behavior that is criminal or maybe a little bit odd and creepy? Is that where we've sort of landed? Is that sort of pursue your desire so long as the other party consents? Is this really where the line is? Is this really what it's come to? And I began to recognize that one of the things that I think we often fail to see is that it is the story that we tell about ourselves as humans that shape our views and our attitudes towards sexuality. It's who we believe we are that determines how we view the topic of sex. For example, what we often find is, is there's often two views that are, that are kind of put forth that I believe are essentially half-truths about who we are. See, oftentimes we're led to believe that, that as human beings, we're really not that different than animals. And, and I don't mean that necessarily in a derogatory or pejorative sense, but rather that we are really just the sum of our physical parts and our physical desires. And therefore, those desires should be pursued, they should be followed, so long as the other party consents, so long as they're in agreement, so long as we don't hurt anyone. And so then the only boundary then is this boundary of consent, and we end up asking questions like, did she or didn't she? Was his behavior criminal or or maybe just a little creepy? And my fear is that if this is our view of who we are, that we have asked the single thing of consent to bear a weight that it simply cannot bear. Now, all too often then, on the other hand, where the church has has had an opportunity to give a far more holistic view of humans and humanity and our sexuality, too often what we've done is we've just denied our humanity altogether. And what we would prefer to do is treat people as if we were angels. If the world causes us to see ourselves as, as bodies without spirits, too often what we've done is we've caused ourselves to see ourselves as spirits without bodies. And so we deny that our physical bodies are are good. We deny that our desires and our sexuality is a very real and powerful part of who we are and who God has made us to be. But you see, the view of the scriptures is, is neither of these. The scriptures do not treat us as mere animals, nor are we angels. But the scriptures give a very distinct picture of humanity from beginning to end that is radically different than any other thing in all creation. It begins in Genesis chapter 1. 
At the very beginning of the creation story, we're given this distinct statement, two things that are said about no other creature. So on the sixth day, God finally gets to the point where he's created animals, and it's on that sixth day that he says this about humans. God said, let man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. We are given a very distinct picture That humanity, unlike anything else in all of creation, is created in the image of God. We are to be a reflection of his goodness and his likeness and glory throughout the world. And so everything that we do, everything that we are, even our sexuality, is intended to be a reflection of who God is. And not only are we created in the image of God, But we're told then in chapter 2 that we are not spirits or bodies, but we are created body and spirit. Verse 7, The Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. You are not the sum of your physical parts. You are not the mere sum of your desires, but nor are those things absent of who you are. You are not a mere spirit with a body that you need to deny, but you are created body and soul, formed from the dust of the ground and the breath of life breathed into your nostrils from God himself. You are a physical being, but a physical being that has been given great honor and glory from the Creator. created in the image of God to reflect his likeness into the world. And when we learn to see ourselves, I think that radically shapes the way we see our sexuality. That when we see ourselves as created in the image and likeness of God, body and soul joined together, we learn to see something very different about sex. Back to Genesis chapter 2. Later, after God has not only formed Adam from the dust of the ground, but then causes the deep sleep to fall upon Adam when he forms then this perfect partner, Eve, from his rib. Adam sees Eve and he says this, This at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Now what takes place in a sexual relationship is two become one. It's interesting here that that Adam is separated to make this partner. And when this partner is made for him, the two are then joined together, reunited as one. And throughout history, God's people have seen that this relationship, this oneness between husband and wife, it begins when the marriage is consummated in a sexual relationship. You see this reflected in in Jewish wedding customs. If you're familiar with, with how things worked in the ancient Jewish world, 
A couple was not officially married after the ceremony, but they weren't married until when? Until the marriage was consummated. Uh, Until the couple would go into the wedding tent with all of the guests waiting outside for the marriage to be made official, and the celebration would not continue until they came out. And I thought preaching this sermon was awkward. (laughs) But what happens when two people come together in that kind of relationship is two distinct persons are joined together as one. And there's something extraordinary about this joining together as one. If you read Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's the words of the Shema where God says to his people, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. The word there in Hebrew is the word echad. And it's the exact same word that appears in Genesis 2.24 to speak of husband and wife becoming one flesh. In sex and marriage, husband and wife are joined together as one like God is one. It is in that relationship that husband and wife are a reflection of the unity of God. We are not the mere sum of our desires. We are not mere spirits, but we are this reflection of God and His goodness. And sex is a part of that. It's a part of who we are. It's a part of how He's made us And when we learn to see that, we can see that the sixth commandment is not about God being this divine killjoy who doesn't want us to have any fun. But rather, we see this commandment as a gift. It's this blessed boundary. This is God saying to his people that in sex, two people are joined together as one. And when we join ourselves to another, we give a part of ourselves away to them. And so to join and separate over and over and over again to person after person after person, it doesn't make us more whole. It doesn't make us more fulfilled. It doesn't make us more human. It makes us less. And so God is saying, don't dehumanize yourself. Don't rip yourselves apart by joining yourself to person after person after person. Because it won't make you whole. It'll make you less whole. And the reality is is that each and every one of us, in one way or another, has experienced this fracturing of our lives. We've all been participants in this broken sexuality that affects all of humanity. We see it in in pornography. What does pornography do but dehumanize? It causes us to see people as objects for our own gratification, and it simply turns us in on ourselves, focused only on me and our desires. We see it when when people go from relationship to relationship and partner to partner, looking for wholeness, looking for acceptance, looking for security, only to find less of it. Find our lives more fractured, not more whole. We see it also in, 
just the simple passing glance to the person on the street and the thoughts that we think or, or maybe the words that we speak. And in that moment, Jesus himself says that we've already committed adultery in our hearts. We've all experienced this. We've all seen our lives fractured by broken sexuality. And the reality is, is that no amount of right thinking can put us back together. Uh, tucked into the minor prophets, there is this sort of odd story. It's in the book of Hosea. If you're familiar with Hosea, Hosea is not only given a, a word to speak to Israel, but God sort of sets Hosea's life apart as almost this object lesson for his preaching. Hosea is commanded by God to go and marry a woman by the name of Gomer, and Gomer has a rather unsavory occupation. Gomer is, is a prostitute. And God says, go and, and marry this woman. And he does so, and, and it goes about as you would expect, is that Hosea is faithful, but Gomer is unfaithful. She runs off. She yokes herself to other men, and God commands him again. He says, go, redeem your wife. Bring her back to you. And God says, because that's how I'm going to treat my people. And when we see Hosea's preaching through the lens of his life, we learn to hear all of the judgment, all of the condemnation on Israel's sin. The words of a grieving husband whose wife has run away. The words of a spouse whose heart has been broken by his spouse's adultery. And finally, at the very end, after all the judgment is spoken, God says these words in verse 14. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They shall flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. God says my love is going to heal them. And even though they've ripped their lives apart, even though they've stained themselves with their impurity, I am going to heal them. I'm going to make them my beautiful bride again. Martin Luther puts it like this. He says, the love of God does not discover what it finds beautiful. It creates it. What God's love is it does not depend upon us being pure in and of ourselves, but rather what it does is it makes us pure. It makes us beautiful. It makes us holy. That's what the cross of Jesus is all about. It is God in the flesh coming and pursuing His unfaithful bride and doing whatever it takes to bring us back to Himself, even when that means enduring the cross, even when that means the grave. God is willing to pursue us in our unfaithfulness. Pursue us in our uncleanness. And it's there from the cross that He pours out His cleansing blood that washes away every stain, every sin. And it is that love that makes us holy and beautiful.
Which is why throughout the New Testament, we see and we hear the apostles refer to the church as what? As the bride of Christ. We are the ones that Jesus has claimed for himself. The ones whom he has cleansed. The ones who he has made holy and new and beautiful once again. And if we're the bride of Christ, I can't help but see the gift of baptism as a marriage proposal. It's in baptism that our faithful husband, Jesus, makes us a promise. No matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter where you go, He promises His faithfulness, His forgiveness, His cleansing, His healing. He promises to make you when it's when we learn to see ourselves as his bride as his beloved it's then that we can learn to see our sexuality all anew I have a friend who, who she is a church worker um, and, and is single and then she said that there's been times in her life where, where she's been a little bit insecure about that, but as she's grown older, she's become more and more secure that this is just simply what God has in store for her right now. And I have, honestly have never met a person who is more secure in her sexuality than this friend. It's not because she denies that that's a part of who she is, but it's because of who she sees herself as. She sees herself as the beloved of Christ, the one whom he has claimed and cleansed, the one who he has made himself one with by his death. I think one of the great lies about sex is that sex can somehow provide wholeness. That that it can bring security. But the reality is it it can't. No relationship can bring us that, except for one. Cling to the one who has given himself for you. To the one who by his cross has cleansed you. Look for your security, look for your wholeness in the one, Jesus, who through his blood has made himself one with you. Amen? Amen.